You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket, and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by our good friend and fellow artist, Sarah Thibault, who is now based in Los Angeles. Um, You might remember our conversation a little while ago with Sarah from the collaborative episode we did with her podcast, The Side Woo where we talked about the overlap between the spiritual practice of art making and the more practical aspects or expectations of building a career. 
um, which was a great conversation. So would definitely recommend going back and listening to that for some background. But I have a feeling today's conversation is going to be pretty different. And we're really excited to be sitting down with Sarah to talk about a specific situation that she just went through, but I think even more broadly, uh, just themes around artist empowerment and agency, some things having to do with pricing. So I'm going to let Sarah describe in more detail um, the situation. But first of all, thanks, Sarah, for sitting down with us. Yeah, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. And you guys, I said this offline, but you are the first people I thought of to have this conversation. So I'm very happy to be here. Welcome back, and we're happy to have you. (laughs) Yeah, we're really glad that you reached out and take it away. Yeah, well, so to just jump into why I'm here, um, I received an email from a collector that had purchased one of my paintings in 2012. It was like my first like really big show out of grad school with – It was a three-person group show that was in the small room of Steve Turner. And James Goebel, my former professor, um, had a solo show in in the ground floor. And he had put me and um, Maisha Mohammadi, actually, and Courtney Johnson, if I don't know if you guys know her. But um, Mm. we were, Mm -hmm. like, in this three-person show. So it was really exciting because it was kind of a big deal for all of us. And... um, you know, Steve sold my two paintings from the show like pretty quickly and one of them to this collector who I later learned is notorious for both like flipping and, you know, I'm probably not going to say his name because I don't want to give him more press. It seems like he's really a big fan of negative press, but he's kind of an art world villain. And yeah, like I think that he likes that role. So, um, So this person, you know, reached out to me and I kind of thought like, okay, it's been like eight or nine years since he got a lot of really bad press. Maybe he's evolved as a human. Like we've all been through so much, you know, that I kind of thought, well, you know, if you get a bunch of bad articles written about your bad practices, like maybe you'll transition into like a more evolved human being. So Mm. I'm just kind of like defending why I communicated with him at all. Um, But so, yeah, he messaged me on Instagram and then was like, oh, I'd love to see some of your available works. And so I emailed him like a little PDF of all the kind of available pieces that I have right now. And he writes back like after I checked in, he like I didn't hear from him, but it was freeze week. And so I was like, you know, whatever. But I checked back in and said, you know, let me know if you have any thoughts like I know your gallery isn't super close to my studio, but if you wanted to come by and do a studio visit, I'd love to have you. And he writes back like, if inexpensive, I'd like to buy one, two, or three. And I was like, (laughs) okay. So immediately triggered by the word inexpensive in that context. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm really curious to see where this goes now because there's very little he can do to redeem himself, but you just never know. So I go, oh, okay, well, here's my price list and just broke it down by size and just sent it to him. And, you know, for the record, what I send is usually like pretty close to retail price. I do not do like a 50% mark off in my studio. Um, I don't know. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys is if you do the same, but I'll just tell my story and we can talk about it. 
So anyway, you know, he gets my prices and he goes, oh, these are too expensive for me. And I go, okay, well, thank you so much for your interest. And then he writes back like maybe 15 minutes later. Well, you know, just so you know, like you're going to be charging like, you know, double for the small painting and then, you know, double that for this other small painting. And he was just basically saying like, assuming that I was giving him 50% off and I go, oh no, sorry. Like I don't actually do that, you know, because, you know, running a small business, AKA an artist studio is, you know, takes an army. So, um, I, you know, I am happy to offer you like a 10% discount. And then he goes, uh, okay. And then like one minute later, right. It's like, I want to get the the quote right because it was really shitty. <laughs> what did yeah, it say? was painful when <laughs> I read the email. I was like, this hurts to read. Like I I'm know. in pain for Sarah. Well, the good thing is I was like hiking in the mountains when it when this email oh, was happening. So I felt like it tempered my irritation. Um, but he goes, these are small paintings. Does not take an army to make them. And I was just like, wow, okay. And so then like within minutes, I just forwarded it to you guys. <laughs> I was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what happened. I didn't respond because I felt like everything is so screenshotable that I didn't want to engage him in a way that like created some validation in his mind for being a dick, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought keeping it professional and not responding and instead, you know, recording a scathing podcast interview about him would really be the best way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the best form of revenge. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, more than that, um, I do kind of want to get like curious about some of the subtext because, yeah, he's a dick. Like we know he, you know, you can look up like his bad practices, but this dynamic like comes from somewhere and clearly people have accepted it as okay because otherwise he would not have kept doing it, you know? So really getting Mm -hmm. curious, like what has created an environment where he feels like he can still do this? You know, what is it to price your artwork coming out of your studio? You know, the luxury art market and the prices are kind of insane, but like you're running a small business. So how much of the overhead of the small business is it fair to pass on to the buyer? That kind of question. So with that, I will be Mm -hmm. quiet and let you guys respond. Yeah, I think what was so interesting about the email exchange are some of those assumptions that this person seemed to be making and the kind of power dynamics Mm -hmm. that it implies. And I think that's one of the things that I was really interested to talk about. And I think it is important to know that you know, you were aware of who this person was, what their reputation was. And again, we won't mention their name, but as we're describing this, if people connect the dots, I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, they're a pretty visible public figure. And so I think that, I mean, I would consider them like a sort of a a controversial kingmaker. Do you Mm. think that's like a fair assessment? Definitely. Yeah. Who now owns a gallery, which I would say for me, the interest in the conversation was like, oh, well, maybe now that you run a gallery, your interest might be in actually presenting like, you know, Mm -hmm. thoughtful exhibitions of artists who are, you know, of interest. So 
to me, that was kind of the goal was like, oh, well, you have a space. Like, it's a nice space. Maybe we could talk about like what you're interested in. But, you know, mm-hmm. that clearly was not the the MO. Yeah, because historically, like you mentioned, this person has a reputation for I guess what we would call speculative buying Mm -hmm. um, or what many people have considered flipping, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a bad word in the art world. It's like buying work for really cheap or inexpensively, Mm -hmm. as you might say, with the intention of selling it, you know, quickly making a profit off of it. And I think in this case, they're sort of like functioning as their own hype machine Mm -hmm. where they're playing a really active role in building this artist's market, building their career, you know, introducing them to new collectors. So on the one hand, there is no doubt that he has transformed artists' careers Mm -hmm. almost seemingly overnight. But I think it becomes controversial for these methods that he's using to do it where there seems like there is sort of an ulterior motive to try and quickly profit off of these artists that I think there's a lot that we could get into, but one of my issues is the kind of characterization of the artists as being these sort of like desperate or helpless, like just kind of waiting to be discovered and then you know, thanks to this person's support, um, they're now able to, they're be- they've become these bigger names. Mm-hmm. And so I think the problem, though, with this really fast acceleration of their markets in a really short period of time is that, you know, while he and other collectors may be profiting off of this artist's success, at the end of the day, it's often the artists that are kind of left in the lurch mm-hmm. or, you know, there have been artists that have kind of broken away or distanced themselves from this person for this reason. And so I think uh, this goes back to the kind of power dynamics that we wanted to talk about between uh, like an artist and a patron and how on the surface this may look like, you know, you've kind of won the lottery or hit some sort of jackpot. Like, wouldn't everyone want this sort of like fairy godfather figure to come in and just provide them all of the resources and support in order to keep making their work? But I think there are some hidden dangers to Mm -hmm. that that's important to highlight, especially uh, like in this context, if you're getting contacted and, you know, being sort of um, asked or pressured to sell your work for a really low rate with maybe like a like an underlying hope or desire that this person could kind of help your career Mm. and so those are some of the initial thoughts that I had just in the exchange and I think the other thing that I found really fascinating I guess is is his assumption that the prices that you are presenting were already marked down to the kind of wholesale rate like this 50% off Mm -hmm. that you know, if you were working alongside a gallery, yes, you would be splitting those profits 50-50. But I think to me, it reveals something about the intention Mm. because, you know, this person is a known collector and if they were really wanting to just purchase your work in order to have it in their collection, then like you were saying, they they should, you know, pay the full price. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or like if you wanted to offer them a 10 or maybe even a 20% discount, you know, that's fine. And that's up to you. I think that's um, perfectly reasonable if this person was coming to you solely as a collector. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that they assumed that what you were offering them was the wholesale price maybe implies that they did have an intention possibly of reselling it Mm -hmm. in the future. And so I think what this does is just kind of take away the agency from the artist because now you've transferred instead of like consigning that work let's say with a gallery that you're showing with where you know if you eventually sell it you're kind of both you've both like mutually agreed upon the price point of that work right if he's buying it at this discount you're now transferring ownership of the paintings over to him so that if he does decide to resell the work you've already locked yourself in at like what the price of the work is. Absolutely. But now he has more control to be able to raise the price of your work or again, like generate some buzz in order to sell it to another collector at a much higher price. And I think what it does is just remove the artist from the equation. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I feel like this is kind of problematic. Yep. And what I love, and I don't know if you mentioned this already, but in your email exchange, I think there are a couple of ways that you kind of subverted that power dynamic. And one of them was when you presented your prices, you let him know that you're also using this platform called Fairchain, mm-hmm. um, which we can maybe talk a little bit more about later on. But yeah, I think that kind of like power dynamic, the assumption that you're offering work at a lower rate, and then the kind of transfer of ownership or control over the lifespan of the work. And the market for the artist, which I feel separate from me Mm -hmm. as a person, and even me as a maker, it's like this separate entity that then now all of a sudden he's going to get to control through his ownership of like, it's kind of like owning stock. Like, all of a sudden he owns a percentage of the business and is going to like take that ownership and like make decisions on behalf of my career that, which I hadn't really thought about that until just now, but like, that's kind of what we're talking about is like this kind of third entity that has nothing to do with me or my goals for my career. It's like once the collector has taken the artwork and they decide to flip it, like, they're kind of making moves on behalf of your career that have nothing to do with anything that you want if they're if they're not interested in your kind of opinion, you know? I don't know if I'm articulating that right, but I think everything you said is totally yeah. on point. There is definitely this subtext of like, you are going to be giving me the best deal possible. And by like preempting it with the word inexpensive, it just felt like he was trying to play like a Jedi mind trick of like, the better deal you give, the more I'm going to purchase. And I'm just like, no, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> yeah, everything about his assumptions were so offensive and disrespectful and like spoke so clearly to the fact that he did not value the artist in this experience sure. in any way, shape, or form. And granted, I'm in a very different art type of world, but the same types of experiences will happen where like people come in hot with these very predatory what they would present as opportunities Mm. but they're clearly not but then the second you push back or show that like you understand what they're trying to do they just act out even worse and Mm. it's 
it's just so absurd. And like I've had this happen before with retail stores like trying to buy my work Mm -hmm. and coming on like very aggressively about it. And I'm like, I can choose not to sell to you. I don't I don't owe you anything. And like the fact that you're coming to me asking me for a reduced rate, like, fuck you. You don't get it at all. Totally. Hell yeah. A dis like I think a discount should always be at the artist's discretion. And the only times I am open to offer discounts is if it's because it's a project I deeply believe in and I want like I just desperately want to do it mm-hmm. and would would do it whether or not I was paid or I'm like offering a discount to someone that I have a good relationship with and I know that like we already look out for each other mm-hmm. and even those situations they usually don't want the discount because they respect me as an artist and they're like no I would like to pay you full price definitely even though I'm family even though I'm friend and I'm like that shows me how much you value me. And I love it. But yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I now don't offer quite as big of a discount for my studio is because I offered 50% off, you know, years ago when I was like, you know, coming up and being like, well, I guess why not? You know, the gallery would take 50. So why don't I just sell mine for 50 and then more people will buy it. And especially if they're like friends or whatever. And I did sell like a couple like really to me like, you know, some of my best work to people for 50% off who at the time were friends and now we're maybe not so close. And I kind of like think about that experience and I felt like I don't feel like it really – I don't want to say paid off because it feels icky to say that about a friend. But I feel like looking back, I really regretted it because I didn't feel like ultimately it really valued my work. And if I did it out of friendship and the friendship is no longer happening in the same way, like, I don't know. So it kind of made me feel like I don't want to resent someone for giving them a deal and then, you know, feeling like they have to be my friend now in order to enjoy that deal or for me to feel good about it. So I just kind of stopped and I'm like, you know, I'm only going to do it for like my mom, you know, who I just like give paintings (laughs) and then everyone else. I'm sorry, (laughs) but you have to pay the full price. Yeah. When you offer a discount, like that discount generally is coming out of your pocket. It's not coming out of your overhead because you still have to pay all of that. Mm. So like any discount, it's coming out of the artist's mouth. Right. And I feel like that's something that either people don't consider or they just don't care. Well, I was just going to say there's the issue of shipping. Like, I don't know, Nicole, um, I mean, you have pretty big paintings and I feel like, Amanda, I'm not sure what your shipping life looks like, but I ship frequently, but lightweight, light cost. Right. And like shipping big paintings is insane. Like, I mean, there are li- literally logistical or logistics companies that that is all they do. And there's a good reason because they make so much money. And I feel like that's something the average like non, you know, fancy collector doesn't understand is, okay, you love my six by five foot painting. Like, how are we going to get it to you? Because if you send it by FedEx, they are not going to insure it. Like probably it'll end up broken or stolen, you know? And then if you send it by an art handler, you better have an extra like $10,000, which is basically the cost of the painting. So I don't know. I just Mm. wanted to throw that in there. That something I've been running into is like, okay, my paintings are a certain price, but then on top of that, you have to cover shipping, which I don't think people really understand what that is or how much that is. 
one thing I was going to add is that it also reminds me of um, being asked to, you know, create work for a discount Mm. on the promise of exposure or on the promise of possible future projects, which I know I've definitely experienced when contacted by uh, like a business to paint a mural, for example. It's, you know, well, we have a really small budget this time around, but, you know, if you do this project for us, I think we are going to have other projects for you in the future, or, you know, your work's going to get a lot of visibility in this area. There are all these kind of justifications for why you should kind of take on that initial workload at a much lower rate. And I think, like, Aside from the instances where you feel like it's appropriate to do that, I think on the whole, it it doesn't often pan out that way. <laughs> I know I've definitely learned that the hard way in the past. And this email exchange reminds me of that a little bit mm-hmm. where, yeah. you know, because of this person's position and what they may be able to offer you in the future, they're sort of asking for, you know, this heavily discounted work which again, like they may or may not want to continue that relationship or like show your work at the gallery or introduce you to people. I mean, this is all just kind of like speculation, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think, again, it kind of puts pressure on the artists to, it kind of like, like, puts them in this position of of desperation like I Mm -hmm. am willing to undercut you know my work because there's a possibility that it could lead into future projects or future sales or whatever it is so I think um like you were just drawing parallels Amanda between like selling through Mm -hmm. retailers I think there's definitely like similarities in other like industries or types of projects as well well and I think there's at the heart of all of this, this like psychological toll that gets taken because, you know, I am struggling financially. I just recently left my recruiting job. Talk about psychological toll. But so, you know, I left my job mid-January and I've been like building up this business, the side woo, and like trying to figure out a way to make a sustainable life as an artist and a freelancer, you know? I mean, it's like the game you guys are playing. So, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, heard. <laughs> in, yeah, you know, and I'm in the beginning of it, so I am not, like, currently making enough to get by, you know? And I luckily sold a painting at full price in January to a friend. So I feel like that's kind of keeping me going. But, like, that's going to run out soon, you know? LA is expensive. And so when he emailed... I think Mm -hmm. another impetus for responding and and kind of pursuing it despite like kind of the vague notion that he maybe wasn't the best collector. I actually hadn't read an article about him in a long time. So I probably wouldn't have had I read some of the ones we talked about before this call. But but, you know, Mm -hmm. I needed the money. So I'm like, cool. Like if he wants to buy something, Mm -hmm. if he wants to show something or he has like a collector base, you know, I didn't know. So I think... Also, I've been wondering, you know, I mean, like, when you think about of all the markets, like the art world, the prices are insane. Like my work is not accessible to most of my friends and family. A lot of people online, you know, who are kind of in my network, like 
can't afford my retail prices. And it's just like a fact. And I think if you sell, you know, fine art at a certain level, like that's just going to be true for everybody. And Mm -hmm. so I, I do have this kind of sense of like, oh, well, should I be docking my prices or making it more accessible? Like, you know, kind of feeling some like guilt too about should I be appealing to like a broader community of people who still want art, but like, will that devalue me as an artist to galleries? And, you know, so just this like thinking about the market and then also just thinking about, okay, also like if I want to live a life as an artist, what does it take to be that person, you know, financially and, and like asking Mm -hmm. for what that's worth. Like if you want artwork from a, a painter living in LA and they can make 10 paintings a month, then you better be ready to pay the amount that it takes, you know, like even if they like sold each one, like how much money does that actually make them, you know? So this idea of like there are some major costs and it's scary and weird to ask for what you're worth in the art market because it's so subjective and like it is a luxury good and most people who get into it are not coming at it with that mindset. And so I don't know, just my sense of self-worth during this conversation was with the email exchange was really challenged, but in a sense that I felt like at the very least, I know I'm not going to sacrifice my dignity to this person who is so clearly like not respecting me as a person even, you know, it's like if he had been Mm -hmm. kind of nice Mm -hmm. and still pulled the same bullshit, I maybe would have like sold him a painting, you know, but he just wasn't even respectful to my humanity. And it just kind of made me feel like, I'm old enough to say, fuck you. Like, I will put money on my credit card before I sell a painting to you. It also sounds like he is very familiar with the fact that many emerging artists are financially desperate Mm -hmm. and can't afford to say no to shitty opportunities. I'd say opportunities in quotes, but like to (laughs) shitty deals. And I think that he counts on that Mm -hmm. and does like is doing that very much as like part of his approach mm-hmm. is like this person probably can't afford to say no to me mm-hmm. so I can afford to be a dick and get away with it and still buy a really nice painting at a really reduced rate mm-hmm. that I'm gonna then turn around and flip for profit a hell of a lot more than that artist ever made off of me and they'll certainly not see any of that profit that that guy's making it's like Absolutely. it's just so well and that's where I wonder gross It's disgusting. Yeah. And I wondered, too, if his response was at all in reaction to the fact that I brought up that I only sell my work attached to Fairchain, which maybe I don't know if this is a good time to talk about it, but it's essentially an artist royalties platform um, that's based on the blockchain, but that's kind of just how the technology works. But you can set for each painting that you sell, either with a gallery or not, you set a percentage of royalty that you get every time your painting is sold in second market and it's tracked on the blockchain. So there's this like register of activity every time like a new owner signs the contract of ownership. And so you not only have the certificate tracking like who owns your paintings, but you also have this guaranteed income every time someone makes money off of you. So I am a huge advocate having grown up in a family where my dad was kind of in the music business and just seeing like that is the standard Mm. fare for musicians and like, why is it so different for artists? Like we're not doing anything differently. You know, if anything Mm -hmm. like 
we're giving away way more for free, you know, because like our photos are being distributed mm -hmm. all over everything. So I always felt like this doesn't make any sense. Like why aren't artists, you know, getting a piece? And so when I saw Fairchain, I'm like, they're BFF. <laughs> they actually sent me, full disclosure, a box of chocolates for Christmas because I've advocated for them <laughs> so much. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So thanks, Fairchain. Oh, well, now I love Fairchain. And exactly. I also love vegan chocolates. <laughs> Just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad that you brought them up, though, because I have been actively looking for people I know that use their platform. And I've been really, um, really intrigued by their work and am totally on board with their mission as well. And we've been thinking about doing an episode around some of these topics uh, in the future. Mm. So I'm really glad to be able to hear more about your firsthand experience because I've listened to a number of interviews that they've done, mm -hmm. but I don't really understand the mechanics of it so much. Mm. Um, again, not having really talked with artists that have used them yet. So I'm really interested to pick your brain about that. But really quickly, um, I just wanted to go back too, to what you were saying earlier about the psychological toll mm. that some of these exchanges can take, um, because I relate to that so much. And I think just in general, as artists, we're constantly experiencing self-doubt because we're you know, coming up against these situations where, um, and just in general, you know, art and artists tend to be undervalued in society. Mm -hmm. So I think probably every artist has a story of where they've felt, you know, either disrespected or undervalued, overworked, or, you know, just been asked to do something that seems unrealistic. And so I think it really ends up hinging on the artist to, develop that really strong sense of mm -hmm. self-worth in order to fortify ourselves against that and to kind of play the role of educating others on you know the actual work that goes into sustaining a studio practice or creating a certain type of work and so I just wanted to echo that because I feel like that's one of the more important I don't know issues to bring up here is just kind of like the toll that that takes on the, the artist that's like out there hustling and trying really earnestly to make ends meet and to grow a career and to, you know, reinvest in their work and then dealing with the realities of figuring out how to make ends meet, make a living. And then meanwhile, you know, kind of going through situations like this where people that are, are supposed to be or like so-called supporters or advocates for the arts, you know, even can be the ones to sort of like tear you like down. undermine the work of being an artist yeah so yeah I just felt like that was important to share because I've definitely yeah. um, like when I moved out to San Francisco even I was coming from Baltimore where um, you know I had been like selling work a little bit but at a much lower price point and at the advice of some other people working in the arts I decided to raise my prices and I think like almost overnight, because, you know, I was also like a few years out of undergrad uh, when I was living in Baltimore. And when I came out here, not only did the cost of living basically triple, right. but I felt like I was at like a slightly different stage. And I decided to basically like double the price of my paintings. And I think 
it probably took me at least two to three years after making that decision before I sold a piece at that new higher price point. Oh, wow. And so I spent a lot of time in the interim just doubting myself, the value of my work, like had I made the right decision? Had I gone up too high too fast? Like all of these thoughts creeping in. And I think now I feel much more confident in where my work is valued at, but it took a long time to get there. And most of it was that internal work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like you said, the art world is such a strange place and artwork is really worth what someone's willing to pay for it (laughs) in kind of like, I don't know, sort of gross terms, but it's, it's true that the value is so subjective. And so I think just having to really constantly remind ourselves of our own value and our own worth is like a almost daily exercise, I would say. I love that. And I'm so glad you said that because, yeah, I think where the, yeah, the toll comes in is not only the amount of work that we put in, which is, you know, I pulled um, the 10 of wands before this conversation and which is essentially someone carrying like a load of sticks with their back bent over and just like ready to fall over, which I think like most artists can identify with as you know, especially if you're a freelancer, you're doing literally everything for your business. So, I mean, not to go on a tangent, but like why I wouldn't discount my paintings anymore. Another reason is like, well, if the 50% going to the gallery is going towards like marketing and shipping and networking and all the like things that, you know, someone representing your work should do, like I'm doing all that for myself too. So, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. just to get back to like your voice, like essentially you're, you're asking for, someone to validate what like to to mirror back to you what your voice your creative vision is worth and if you put out a number and someone doesn't accept it it's such a vulnerable moment of like oh Mm -hmm. my god Mm -hmm. like who am I it's like any you know childhood wounding you may have around your voice being valuable or heard like you know there's a lot of potential trigger there and so for Mm -hmm. me like I think having had just left a recruiting job where part of your job is just to like get rejected over and over again. It actually toughened me up a lot (laughs) because by the time, cause you know, you kind of do the same thing with the, the companies you try to get you to get to hire you where you like put out a number for like, okay, this is what my fee is. And you could either lower your fee or you can just say, no, this is what it is. And like, you have a certain wiggle room where you can lower your fee, but like, there were people at the company who literally never lowered their fee and they were making the most of anyone at the company. And I thought like, I don't necessarily think I'm going to do that at this job, but this is something I could definitely take with me into my art career, which is like, okay. Yeah. There's like a lesson in there. There is, you know, and it's like, if you only make so many paintings, like, do you want to hold on to that painting until someone who can really value it? Like, buys it. You know, I mean, that's kind of, it's like kind of gross that it comes down to money, but it's also a sense of like value and who's going to really like honor the work that you put in and the creative vision and all that. Oh yeah. And I mean, thinking about my own studio practice, like when I show up to the studio, I, you know, say we're recording this on March 1st. So like it's the beginning of the month and I think, okay, I need to make, you know, X amount of dollars this month in order to break even, in order to sustain my life. And hopefully I can make a little more, but like I have to at least 
find a way to produce that amount of money mm-hmm. in work in that time frame. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that money or that those things are going to sell. Like there's mm-hmm. a, an abundance of things in my studio around me that I have produced and not sold. And many of them have been within the last couple of years, some of them even a little bit longer. But usually the things do eventually sell. And mm-hmm. like reducing my rate only, it only does me a disservice mm-hmm. by then saying like, oh, even though I agreed that this is what I was worth when I made it, I've decided this is what I'm worth now because I'm desperate. And I don't know, I think <laughs> totally. I try to, to like think those Think about those things, and I, I always think about, Nicole, when you had showed me your, uh, another plug for Artwork Archive, but when you had showed me your Artwork Archive and showing the oh, kind yeah. of the tracking of mm. works that you had produced in a year versus works you had sold in a year and kind of the lifetime of a work in your archive where it's like, oh, yeah, I made this three years ago, but it just sold. But, like, you know... the that was that's three-year-old work mm-hmm. I'm making totally different things now or you know whatever and so I think there's just so much no totally in the painting I just sold you know she actually loved it a year ago and told herself like if you still love it in a year you're like I'm gonna buy it mm-hmm. mm. and so she messaged me a year after I posted it for the first time on Instagram and was like I love it I have to have it like I w- waited a year and so now I want it and I was like oh amazing exactly so I was like oh okay like that is the kind of relationship I want my collectors to have with my work regardless of the price yeah. is like someone who's really going to like cherish it and mm-hmm. it kills me to think about this guy who bought my painting in 2012 it's probably the painting he probably bought or he bought is probably sitting in a warehouse, if not in multiple pieces after having read articles about him. And oh, it just mm-hmm. kills me because I'm like, oh, yeah, I even thought after this exchange, like, can I buy it back? <laughs> like, but I can't afford that. Right. Like, <laughs> I don't want you tied to my work at all. You, you don't deserve it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it relates to that idea of value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if you guys have specific questions about Fairchain, but I'm happy to explain like my experience with it. I am curious how it's enforced. Like, mm. you know, how how say your work is on Fairchain, it gets sold on a secondhand market. How is there any like accountability that that royalty then goes to you? Like, mm. is it connected to a system that like the auction houses are connected to or like like say a piece of yours then goes to Christie's it's like oh well Christie's always is going to check the fair chain database or whatever so I think it is connected to whoever buys it so I mean if I don't know how that works usually does Christie's like purchase work and then sell it directly from their own supply or it's more like they're a third party i feel like they're a third party oh i don't know i literally just oh, dropped okay. that name because i okay good. yeah i was gonna say i don't I like think someone else like, answer i think they get a fee and i could be totally yeah. wrong here obviously i've never sold work through <laughs> the auction houses but i think they like get a fee for processing that transaction basically and there was a i was gonna say nicole there was i think it was the art angle episode that you had sent Mm -hmm. that talked with Fairchain, Mm -hmm. but in that it was said that I think auction houses don't work directly with artists. Like they'll only work 
Right. Uh, like for firsthand or first sales or whatever. Which actually isn't true. Oh, it's not? Oh. Oh, okay. Anymore. Not anymore. Um, so they, Sotheby's, I was just in a show curated by Jerry Gagosian, a.k.a. Hildy Heffenstein. Yeah. And so. Oh, love her account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's awesome. Um, so basically that. They assigned me an actual Sotheby's sales agent, and wow, I like had I was in New York this past summer and like made a piece there, and then had to like get it to the Sotheby's auction house like location somewhere in Manhattan, and they basically like propped it up on a wall. It was actually still wet when I gave it to them. Oh my god, because it was like a hundred degrees, and I like couldn't make it fast enough for it to dry because it was just so hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they, I will say, did not agree to working with Fairchain because um, I was like, you know, I really mm. like to hmm. use this for any of my pieces. And they're like, we just have no way to do that because they're not built that way. Mm. But um, but I know that that's like a new initiative for them to create. Like if you go on their website, there's like a whole contemporary art section um, and it's all firsthand like or primary market. But in terms of like how Fairchain gets reinforced, so like let's say, okay, you're showing with like, let's just say Guerrero Gallery, a gallery that used to be in San Francisco but is now in LA. So, or, you know, part two, I'm actually having this conversation with part two, um, the director, Brock. He's like curious about how it works. So mm. I was like, well, okay, these paintings, I want to sell them, you know, on consignment to you through Fairchain. And so he would need to get an account, which he's in the process of doing. And then I consign the pieces to him. And then once he has access to them through his own Fairchain account, he will then be able to sell them to people without me knowing who the collectors are, because like some galleries want to keep that information private. Or at least like, you know, all the sales information and like the address and everything. So then the collector now owns the contract, which is hosted on Fairchain. If they then sell it to another person, in order for that person to legally own the piece, they have to have that contract transferred to the new person's name. Okay. And Fairchain, it is my understanding that they have something like a million dollar policy where they will go to legal battle for you to get the money that you're owed if if someone does not honor the contract yeah I feel like they talked about this maybe in that podcast episode um which is through the art angle if anyone's interested it's called can artists beat flippers at their own game um and they they interview one of the co-founders of Fairchain, um, along with a gallerist and another artist. But I don't remember if it was this episode or another interview that they gave, but they talked about the kind of contracts they use as being legally enforceable. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that it is built on the blockchain gives a sort of permanent record of that. And they Mm -hmm. had said the same thing where like if you – it's like it has to do with the title transfership. So it's like – if that person doesn't resell the work through Fairchain, they may have the physical object, but legally... They're not the owner. The person that owned it previously would still own the title of it. Gotcha. So I guess there's still possibly like issues of enforceability yeah. with how... I don't know. I'd be interested to hear from like a gallery or collector that's gone through the process because this is all kind of like hypothetically, this is how it should work. But 
Yeah, like I'm of curious. the second market, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested to know more about how those conversations have gone, um, if we're getting into it, because I have been really interested in using Fairchain as well, mm-hmm. but I haven't um, put in a request to sign up or anything like that. And one of, one of the things I was wondering is how have those conversations gone that you've had mm. with galleries or with people in, um, apart from this one, like exchange we've been talking about yeah. for the episode, but um, like some of the other places you've been working with, whether like Sotheby's or Part 2 Gallery, like how have you approached it and then how have they gone? Yeah, everyone has been pretty open. Um, I did it for my show with Dream Song Gallery in Minnesota, um, and I've done it for individual sales like out of my studio, and collectors have been just totally fine with me sending it to them. Um, I will say like, you know, was like, oh, okay, like, you know, has this hurt your sales at all? Um, maybe bleep out of his, his name, but, you know, he was like, has oh, yeah. this hurt your sales or, you know, how have collectors responded to you using Fairchain. And honestly, I've heard Mm -hmm. this from other artists too. I've had more pushback from gallerists being concerned about that than I have from the actual collectors. Um, Mm -hmm. And I will say the one feature that I think gallerists could really think about is that as the artist, you get to choose not only the percentage of royalty for yourself, but you can dole out percentages to like anyone else So let's say I had a model that I worked with really heavily on a series. Mm. I could give her a percentage for anything that I've, you know, she was in or, and I can also give a percentage to the gallery. So like I've talked about this before, but like, you know, if you have someone like a Hillary Pesas showing at Guerrero in 2015, if he had had Fairchain at that time, and then now her paintings are selling for, you know, six figures, like that would be a little boost to his programming, you know, and yeah. like reward for having that eye and that investment at the early stage. So I think if gallerists like are willing to take the risk, it will really benefit them. As I say, it seems like that's a potentially lucrative option for gallerists as well to retain some kind of royalties. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where like the more people use it, the more it will get taken on. But like if people Mm -hmm. are afraid and don't use it, it's just never going to be impactful. Like, like I think the long game is to get legislation passed, like similar to the UK has something, although their model isn't quite as good for artists, but, but like building Mm -hmm. the value is kind of like recycling. Like recycling actually doesn't do that much for the environment. It's not really making that big of an impact, especially when, you know, people aren't even recycling plastic bottles anymore. But like one reason to keep doing it is it's building the value in people's minds of like, oh, I want to take care of the the earth. I want to support, you know, protecting the environment. And like that act of doing it on a regular basis is kind of like building that within people's value systems. And so I think back to value, like if we can get artists, collectors and gallerists to build in a sense of like, we want to make sure that artists are taken care of for, you know, have like a longevity in their career, then we should do this as a way to support them, even if it's like a little awkward and, you know, maybe 
hard to scale up, you know, like or hard to enforce, but like the act of at least trying to do it, I think is like almost more important than actually it working. Yeah. And well, if you look at the trajectory of a really like successful established artist career, you know, it's often those early works Mm. that become the most valuable in a sense, but they're also the ones that are made in a period of time where the artist may have the most kind of like economic pressures mm. or demands mm-hmm. and it's sort of the the one of the more difficult periods to just continue to push through and keep making their work mm. so I think if you can kind of like take that long view of your career as an artist you know you're not just selling like yes we all want to sell our work and have it be out in the world but I think that there is something to considering like how that work may be valued in the future mm-hmm. if you are like committed to, like we all are, you know, to keep working and, and building our our work and our careers throughout our lives. Um, and I think this kind of relates back to like the, you know, the reason we had this conversation or that initial exchange where a kind of offer like this in the short term may seem really beneficial for an artist to like sign on with a like a, a patron that's mm-hmm. you know kind of offering to support them at an early stage where in the span of a few years they may go from working in obscurity to being a known name their market soars but you know like a a bubble in any other industry it is eventually going to pop and the artists are often the ones left in the lurch while the collectors have been able to profit or those Mm -hmm. patrons or dealers. And so I think there is value in whether by choice or just like from, you know, the natural way of how your career goes slowly and methodically building your career Mm -hmm. over time, as opposed to kind of like, chasing that silver bullet or this like rocket ship Mm -hmm. to success because there are definitely can be consequences to that and I think with a platform like Fairchain it does allow artists to kind of retain some of the value and ownership over the those early works so I think it's a really exciting way to just continue to value like the work that you put in at that earlier stage. I mean, this kind of goes back to what you had said, Sarah, about it. It takes an army to run a small business to sustain an arts practice. And (laughs) it's not just about how long it took you to make that particular painting. It's all of the work that led up to that point. And I think all the work that goes on beyond the studio. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Someone sent me home. My jokes are bad. That's so good. Well, on that note, like, you know, as we were talking, I think we both, we all had like different reference points for the same idea, but I immediately thought of this Rolling Stone interview that they did with Sia, who was talking about requiring like a 50 50 split with her. I don't know if it was like a, an agency or something that she worked with for any songs that she wrote. And the agent that she was talking to said like, oh, like, why do we have to pay you 50%? Like, it only takes you 10 minutes to write the song. And she goes, oh, yeah, 10 minutes and, you know, 40 years. Yeah. And then I don't know if, Nicole, you want to say, like, you also had. Yeah. Well, it reminded me of that story that people have told about Picasso, like, sitting in a park or a restaurant. I don't know what it was. And, you know, a woman walks up to him and asks if he can make her a drawing on a napkin, and she'll pay whatever he feels it's worth. And so he, like, you know, scribbles something quickly and then 
hands it to her and says, that'll be like $10,000 or whatever. And the woman's just totally shocked. She's like, how, how could you value that napkin for that price? It took you three seconds to make it. And then he says a similar thing, like it took me, you know, an entire lifetime to be able to make that drawing. And I think it's definitely just a good metaphor for the work that artists put into their lives. It doesn't matter the scale of your work, um, but it's really a product of the number of years that you've been working and the level of investment and how much like time and thought and care you've put into it. So it it definitely does take a village or an army, I think, um, again, to sort of like just be so dismissive of that makes me feel like that person doesn't really value the the work of being an artist in the same way that you know a collector that's willing to wait a year and then comes back because they just can't stop thinking about the painting yeah totally well and um as you guys were talking the the word like agency kept coming up for me too like the sense of the artist's agency within this dynamic where you know if Mm -hmm. we're we have all these forces kind of being enacted on us, like the art market and our, you know, potentially our finances that may not be, you know, where they, we need them to be and um, whether or not people like our work or whatever. And so then when someone actually does give us like an opening, I think it's really easy to want to just like let go of all of your power to like kind of follow this one like opening of opportunity. And I think, Fair chain is a way to kind of build an artist agency into the conversation. You know, this idea that like not only do galleries like need us, but like we're an important part of the conversation and building our market as well as like saying like who gets to buy our work and and how we create a more equitable ecosystem and divide the wealth. You know, like let's say, I, you know, mm-hmm. someone's like the next Peter Doig and they were on fair chain they get to decide like, oh, actually my wealth is going to benefit other people too. You know, I want to support the gallery that got me here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It creates more opportunity for equity amongst those who are often left out of the equation. And I feel like you also force someone in, you know, in that position where you're like, all right, here's fair chain. It's injecting the lifetime of the work into the conversation as well, Mm -hmm. because like, yes, you're do, you're partaking in a momentary transaction, but that piece is going to live beyond that moment and it may live beyond you and it probably will. And the fact that like you have to consider the lifetime of your work and what that means for you, because if it's continuing to move out there and money is is shifting hands around your work and you're still alive and not benefiting off of that, like that's so absurd. And that's like, that's how it is now. And it's just fucked. And I think, yeah, the more we can talk about it and say, hey, this is not okay. We as artists believe that we deserve equity in our work. We know we're valuable. We know, you know, buyer may say this is expensive. However, I say it is valuable. If you don't believe it is worth the expense, then it is, it won't have value for you. So like move on. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm just trying to do the math really quick on like what even, you know, because they recommend like four to five percent. Like usually the percentage I do is like a four percent royalty for me and then like a one percent for the gallery, which, okay, let's say Mm -hmm. my painting sells in the secondary market for a million dollars. I would get 40,000 of that, which 
like probably I don't want to jinx myself, but like won't happen in this lifetime. <laughs> so, you know, like if I saw my work sell for, you know, $100,000 and getting 4% of that, that's like 4000 So if you think about someone who can afford like a $100,000 painting, $4,000 to them is not going to mean that much. And it may not mean a lot oh. to the artist who is selling work for that much at that point. But it, I think, again, it goes to showing like, we value you. You are part of the conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, in every other, at least every other creative industry I can think of, it's very much a part of the system. Yeah. Like with music, with movies and TV, like, I mean, it may be less so now, like maybe now people are getting flat rates instead of royalties mm. in their contracts as well. But yeah, it's it's a conversation that should have started in the art or in the visual arts much sooner. But mm-hmm. we're having it now. We are. Beyond the Studio is tackling it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you brought up earlier to the just the psychology behind all of this, because I think, you know, this the theme of value seems to be coming up a lot. And just the these ideas of self-worth and self-confidence. And the irony is that like you you need those things the most at these earlier stages when, you know, it kind of matters the most in this time when you, you really are going out on a limb to advocate for yourself or your work before you may have a proven track record or before you've like had a, a really established market or sales history and to kind of like introduce these things early on as a way of providing you some kind of future insurance or you know, you're basically signaling to someone else that I, I see my, myself and my career continuing to grow. And if there is potential that my work is resold, that I want to continue to be a part of that. And so I think it does take a lot of confidence initially to to have these conversations when it, it isn't so mainstream. So I think it's really wonderful that you're doing that and that you're helping to shape others' perceptions around it while advocating for yourself, I do think it is a way to just like encourage people to value not just art, but artists in general. Mm -hmm. And so it it is a way to help kind of like raise the tide around how artists are supported in society at large. Well, and I love that too, this idea of like, it's kind of like behavioral therapy. Like you have to go through the motions sometimes before you actually believe it yourself. And so like, Mm -hmm. By going through the motions of advocating yourself either through like fair chain or, you know, ignoring emails like this or, you know, maybe before you're quite like fully certain you believe that you're worth more. Like, I think you do build that inner confidence just by like having these types of trials, you know, it's like it's almost the universe is testing you. Like, do you think you're worth it? Let's see. Like, are you willing to sell to this guy who's totally rude to you over email? (laughs) You know? Yeah. And I'll say regarding the podcast, and this is all Nicole, but we have like we've set our advertising rates a lot higher than what is quote unquote industry standard Mm. because we know what our expenses are and we know what it costs to run our podcast and we we know what we believe our time is worth. And sometimes we get pushback on it and, you know, people will be like, oh, sorry, that's too high or that's out of budget. But it or sponsors will pass. They're like, no, sorry, we're. Oh, yeah. Sorry. But then it also will result in us getting that rate for sponsorships Mm. and or at least being able to give us a point of reference to negotiate Mm -hmm. a better rate than what's being offered. And like, 
it it feels scary sending those out or even being like, are we really asking for this? And then we're like, yes, this is not an absurd amount. This is like so little compared to so much. But like, I don't know. Nicole, you probably can speak a little more on it, but. Yeah, well, when it's not like an industry norm, it does feel like you're kind of going against the grain. Mm. But I think being able to to justify or just or not even that I think just kind of treating these things as matter of fact Mm -hmm. has been helpful it's like um, whether it has to do with negotiating on price or I mean I can think of lots of other examples in negotiating around certain contract terms or Mm -hmm. just like the terms of a project agreement and just kind of stating like oh you know this is my policy or it's it's not my policy to do xyz I mean I think we can kind of like talk ourselves out of a lot of things mm-hmm. <laughs> just expecting or assuming what other people are going to think or say and oh a hundred percent that is like the worst quality of anyone you know it's like playing this conversation yeah. of self-doubt <laughs> like they're obviously going to say the meanest like most dismissive thing to me if I even bring this up <laughs> yeah well mm-hmm. and I don't remember where I heard this but it really like it stuck with me where someone had just said like in response to this it's like don't don't negotiate with yourself like mm, if you're oh going to enter into a negotiation, you know, like don't make these assumptions around what you th- think someone's going to say or how they're going to react. And I think just like personally. Nicole, I feel attacked. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you just read me because Called I negotiate out. with myself all the time. No, I needed to hear that. Thank you for well, saying Well, I, I think we've all been there. For sure. I, I literally did that. Yeah, it's not always easy. Well, I was going to say, I just did that with a asking a guest to be on our podcast, like just thinking that they were going to say no hardcore and just be so annoyed that I even asked. And they totally were excited and felt really happy to be asked. And I was like, wow, I made that whole conversation up. Like, and I pulled tarot <laughs> on it yeah. and was totally doing the like tarot spiral of like reading the darkest mm-hmm. possible thing into it. And then at some point, the tarot starts, like, responding to that, like, heavier energy. And so you start pulling, like, worse and worse cards. And it was like, okay, I need to get out of my ass and just, like, send the email and, like, (laughs) see what happens. And it went really well. And I was like, oh, I really didn't think I had the capacity to be that wrong. And so that was very enlightening, I would say. Well, it's it's like human nature to overthink these things, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think when you, like try and remove that like back and forth in your head Mm -hmm. and you just kind of decide for yourself like this is what it is or like this is how I do things or this is what the price is whether or not you like you know you could actually be open to negotiating or having a conversation or whatever but I think it kind of like makes it things a little easier Mm -hmm. by just removing that that whole dialogue and and just kind of telling yourself like well this is how I do things and then I think that does translate when you're communicating with other people. And like Amanda said, when it comes to like podcast sponsorships, for example, we I feel like, you know, we're just pretty clear, like we try and be communicative and like lay things out and here's what's included and here's how much it is. And if it's like too much for a sponsor, then that's totally fine. But it it doesn't mean that's a value judgment on Mm podcast or what like we're bringing to the table you know and and actually sometimes like people have said like well we can't make that work right now but they have come back later Mm, or like it's helped us to Mm -hmm. sustain relationships and so you know that doesn't always happen but I think um 
you do like just back to those power dynamics it does help you like reclaim a little bit of that power agency when you are willing to say no or to walk away yeah and I think you know it can be one of the hardest things but it does maybe ultimately serve you in the long run yeah you really find out who you are when you're faced with like a shitty opportunity and you're like <laughs> your bank account is like dwindling to zero I think that's when you really find out like who what am I made of because <laughs> that was kind of my experience I'm like okay well I've come a long way like I really did not cave and I need that money. So what do I do now? And then I'm like, okay, universe, like bring your checkbook down because <laughs> I passed that test. So I'm ready for the next, yeah. you know, the prize. <laughs> well, and it's definitely not easy. I mean, actually, Amanda and I had a conversation recently, like off, um, uh, off record or like outside of the podcast where we were just talking about how we feel like um, – I don't know, like there's just been a lot of like lost opportunities mm. or flaky clients mm. or just like some mm. of the, we're just kind of venting about like the struggles and challenges of it. And I feel like, you know, I've been getting a lot of inquiries about potential projects, which is exciting, but the majority of things do not work out. Mm. And for whatever reason, it's like people ghost yeah. you, they decide to pass. And there was this one um, project in particular or like one client and it's like a pretty like big well-known brand and I you know I'd love to work with them and they had reached out and I don't know if it was the price point or like oh no you know what it was I had presented um, a contract and they sent it on to their legal team but they couldn't get it reviewed in time and the project had a really tight turnaround so they said you know I'm sorry we're gonna have to pass but maybe there could be other projects in the future so I said, okay, but like, you know, this is where I'd kind of made a decision. Like I wasn't going to start any work before I'd received a deposit or before I had a contract in place, which I feel like are pretty basic things, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. so the, the client passed, but they actually did come back later and said, Hey, we have this other project, similar thing. It was like really tight turnaround and like same issue. Like they mm -hmm. just couldn't get their act together or like review the agreement. And, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to be pressured into just like starting work on something no. if I wasn't really confident that I was going to get paid in a timely matter. Yeah. And so that project again, didn't go through. And then it was, it's like almost funny at this point. So then a third time they came back with another project and we went back and forth a little bit and you know, and I don't feel like I'm being unreasonable. Like I'm trying to be really accommodating. I feel like I'm really prompt in all my communications. And so now like third time they've just like passed on the project or like dropped the ball. And so mm. it's been pretty discouraging because I feel like, you know, I'm trying to, these are pretty like. And you never get past the contract stage is that kind of where it stalls? Yeah, yeah. It's like mm. that seems to be where the hangup is. And I don't know if it's a matter of timing or budget or just like, you well, know, I understand with companies and you have multiple teams. So it definitely has caused me to have these like feelings of self-doubt. Like, well, should I just, should I like bend my own rules mm. in order to get the project to go through and then we can negotiate further? Or, you know, like I, I definitely relate to just the, um, inner like monologue that goes on when you know you're like is it me or <laughs> is this just that's how it goes so interesting well so as a recruiter one of our main 
requirements of the job is to like sign because I was a corporate headhunter, not not for like a specific company. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to always be signing new clients. And I would say I would send out like six to seven plus contracts before I would actually get one signed back. And that would always be the hardest part is like getting the actual mm. contract signed. And part of the issue mm. is companies didn't want to be accountable to our rules, which is essentially like pay on time, you know, don't yeah. go behind our back and mm-hmm. like steal a candidate, like don't hire someone, you know, in two months that you pass on today, you know, so basically don't fuck us over and they don't want to be held to that standard. And so I think, you know, you're probably protecting yourself and they don't want any liability around whatever shitty practices they might do. I mean, I'm just guessing that not every company is like that. And some just like don't want to sign other people's contracts. Like, I don't know if they offered you a contract at all at some point. Uh, No, but yeah, I think there's definitely... um, I know that every company operates differently, but I think it was also like an example for me of where I was, I feel like I was negotiating with myself a lot or Mm, wondering like, should I be doing something differently or am I just, you know, like in kind of like sticking to my guns and asking for what I think are really like reasonable expectations Mm -hmm. is this just like the nature of it like you know some some people aren't going to go for it and that's fine yeah oh for sure I mean I think I'm just like curious because that's so closely like mirroring my experience as a recruiter that I'm like oh this is interesting to see that happen in the art world too I feel like a lot of times it's any kind of resistance or any kind of barrier people are just like ah this had pushback move on move to the next and I feel like a lot of times for those different creative opportunities, if they're reaching out, they're probably casting a really wide net and just whichever seems to go the smoothest is whichever person they end up working with. I mean, I I feel like half the, no, over half, a majority of the inquiries that have come my way have resulted in absolutely nothing. And it's wild how often someone will reach out and just be like, oh, we thought of you for this opportunity. We think it'd be perfect. And then like before I even get a chance to be like, yes, sounds good. They're like, ha, just kidding, moving in a different direction. I'm like, whoa, Jesus. But then it's like if even if I get to the stage where I'm like, oh, here's my policy, here's my contract, here's whatever, it's like just ghosted Mm. half the time. But I think it's like it's the challenge or the time constraint or yeah, maybe they have a a legal department that they're like, ugh, it's going to take forever to get it through that. So we're just going to move on to the the path of least resistance, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Which again, maybe that um, inexperienced person who's asking for less and like just not valuing their time as much, you know? Yeah. And I think it is one of those situations um, that artists often find themselves in where unless we all like start advocating for these things, then, you know, it's unfortunately like is sort of easy for a company to just go to like another artist that's not going to offer a contract or who's willing to do it for like half of what you were quoting or, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's always going to be some of that, but I don't think we should just be trying to, it's not like a race to the bottom, you Mm -hmm. know, like we're not trying to just appeal to the lowest common denominator. And 
I think that if we if we do try and like set and keep these standards for ourselves, then I guess the other way to look or like the way that I try to look at it is like, okay, well, maybe that project like wasn't right. But that just means you're like you're seeking the next one and that is going to be more aligned with your values or your work like you just have to believe that those people are out there (laughs) and that it's just a Mm -hmm. matter of finding them you know it's like a scavenger hunt instead of like wasting time trying to bend over backwards to accommodate you know people that are not you know going to be great to work with potentially anyways so and I do think there are like cases where you know I sold a painting to um, a jewelry maker and artist for like way less than I normally would. And we're going to do like a trade and she's going to give me some jewelry. Oh, I love a trade. You know, and I felt like, (laughs) yeah, I wouldn't do this all the time, but I really like her work and I liked her vibe. And I was like, you know, there is something to building community and like the barter system, you know, capitalism is the inherent evil, but but there is something going outside of that and like really like having this kind of collaborative approach also, you know? Oh yeah. I feel like that's the only way I can collect work half the time (laughs) is just by trading with other artists. I'm like, I can't give you cash, (laughs) but I can give you something I made. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I just want to mention like when I, comes to you know choosing not to like negotiate down Mm. with some of these companies I'm talking like this is like a multi-billion dollar company totally you know so I I just feel like again going back to the agency that you have as an artist like it really is up to you when and how you want to negotiate I think Mm -hmm. and like what circumstances you feel like it's important to kind of stick with your stick with a set of rules you've created and then like other situations where you know, like rules are made to be broken. Like it's, it's up to you. And there's plenty of times when I've done work or like offered a discount or like volunteered my time for something Mm -hmm. because I really care about it. And I think the important thing is that it's just your decision. So, um, I'm all for like figuring out how to, yeah, like build community and kind of like support one another in the ways that we can. Yeah. We're all for artist autonomy Whatever, yeah. Whatever we can do to encourage each other from being bullied by big businesses <laughs> or or <laughs> shitty art flippers, right? Absolutely. Do not. Yeah. Time to stand up to that shit. Was there anything else that we haven't covered, um, Sarah, that you had wanted to mention? I don't think so. I think we've pretty much gone over everything. I mean, yeah, like just getting to really like the psychology behind it and how it like, I don't know. Yeah. I think we've talked about everything. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited to listen back and I was excited to record this because I was like, Mike, we're going to record a podcast today about some art drama and I am so pumped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're normally not like very gossipy on the podcast, but I feel like this episode was really important for some of the like larger themes. Mm. And I'm glad that it was sort of connected to this specific situation and person because I think honestly this is like our hope for the podcast is that like one of the our our, like most valuable resource in the arts is one another Mm -hmm. right like artists and the kind of like knowledge that we hold is one of the ways that like the arts especially are so relational and the art world is like so based around 
these kinds of conversations and I think being able to have like other artists to turn to or friends mm-hmm. to like process things with is, is yeah, like so important. Yeah. Yeah. Like air it out. So it doesn't kind of fester and turn into this like shameful inner spiral, you know, back to the psychological toll, like letting a conversation get to you and then wondering, you know, having that debate mm-hmm. in your head, like, did I do the right thing? And just spiraling with it. Like I probably would have yeah. done that, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. So I feel like yeah. this time I was like, no, I'm going to learn from my mistakes and actually like bring this to a larger, you know, population that can maybe learn from it or, you know, have feedback. Like, and again, I don't really want to cancel anyone or like do it, you know, I think we've really done a good job, like getting curious yeah. about like the larger issues at play because ultimately this person's mm-hmm. a product of their environment, you know, and right. Yeah, this is a reflection of a bigger, broader issue Mm -hmm. within the arts Mm -hmm. that happened to have been presented in this one scenario. And like, I don't know, I think gossip, I don't know if you've heard the podcast Normal Gossip, it's Uh -uh. great, but it talks about gossip as a important social function, Mm. as a way of people, especially not in positions of power, of kind of letting each other know what's up where it's like hey this thing this person in power may try to take advantage of you and like Mm -hmm. i am here to warn you so i think that it's important that we can talk about these things yeah i really appreciate you reaching out sarah because i think this has been so valuable for us included and just that you were willing to have this conversation in a kind of public forum so that other artists can listen and learn and be a part of the conversation i think this is how we do start to like shift and change those narratives and and just equip ourselves with information so that if we're presented with a similar, um, you know, <laughs> a similar situation, we were like more prepared to be able to um, handle that individually. So I really appreciate your honesty. And honestly, I'm impressed with the ways that you advocated for yourself, even in that brief exchange. And I'm super excited to learn more about Fairchain and some of the things that we talked about. So Thanks for just laying it all out there. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's hard because we don't have video, but I'm like just very warm and fuzzy right now. So (laughs) thank you so much for having me on your show. And again, like you were the first people that I thought of to talk about this because I think you're doing such a good job, like really kind of transparently looking at money and art. So thank you for all the hard work that you guys do. Oh, thank you. You're too kind. And thanks for bringing this to us. This has been yeah. really helpful. And yeah, it, it just helps always to hear the hardships that other artists go through and see that like the experiences that we have ourselves are not so isolating. Like mm-hmm. we're all dealing with a lot of bullshit out here. <laughs> so much. Everybody get your shovels. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! I think I'm here. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yes. Yeah. Can you hear us?
Oh, great. Okay, yeah, I can hear you now. Do we want to try clapping? Like, do like a one, two, three clap? Sure. Sure. Okay, and we'll see how delayed we are. Okay, one, two, three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that felt... <laughs> Wait, was that delayed? Yeah. It felt like it was okay to me. Okay. Okay, I, oh, no. I felt like I was clapping alongside with someone, but then there was a delayed one that I heard, but couldn't okay. tell you which one it is. We'll find out in post. <laughs>